Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Tuesday, February 27th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with Zman Yisrael Editor-in-Chief Birani Goren and political correspondent Tal Schneider, who is with Zman Yisrael and Times of Israel. So it's very good to see you both and to have you here together. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Hi there. It is day 144 of the war. This morning, Hezbollah fired dozens of rockets at the Upper Galilee. We also heard from President Joe Biden yesterday as he said that he's hoping for a Gaza ceasefire by next week, hoping for a truce for hostages before Ramadan begins on March 10th. It is also election day in Israel as polls opened across much of the country this morning for the twice-delayed local elections. We will talk about that as well as what is going on with the Haredi draft and revelations about Hamas operatives that were revealed yesterday. All of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet. But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, Tal, we're going to start with you. Israelis are heading to the polls today, not everywhere, because there are, of course, the many thousands of evacuees from the north and south, and elections in those areas are delayed until November 19th, nine months from now. Beyond those extremely logistical issues that you talk about in your explainer story that's at the top of our pages right now, what are the key features in these local elections? And really, what is the message that we're possibly going to be sent from the results of these local elections. But let's start with the key features. Right, Jessica. So elections were supposed to take place in October, um, you know, right um, after the holidays. Obviously, with the war erupting on October 7th, they were postponed. But the issue at the time was religious and state. Many people were really concerned about the judicial overhaul, and they were looking for local mayors that will protect their civil rights in, you know, in local places. Uh, with the war and, you know, the general concern overall Israel from security, for security reasons, people just changed the way they look at local elections. They just, um, you know, went to back to familiar and secure candidates, meaning many of the people that are currently serving as mayor may remain intact. And they were looking for local arrangements for, for security, for self, you know, how to protect your houses and so on, so on. So we don't know what is going to be the effect. We definitely think it's not going to be religious and state. And um, as you said, 180,000 people cannot vote at this time because the area 
they live at is under heavy bombardments. Um, with that, um, I think big cities may remain with the same mayors, uh, except maybe Haifa, that's our uh, biggest northern city, which may exchange hands. We will, you know, um, they're fighting off uh, environmental issues actually over there, but they may exchange hands. Still, they may go to a former mayor, meaning, again, a secure and known figure. Overall, we have issues with gender in Israel, where in municipal towns and councils, we hardly have any women at the top. And unfortunately, it may remain the same this time around. You know, we have other local issues, um, you know, health, environment and so on. But overall, it's a very tense day, I think. Even when people get to, you know, cast their vote, their minds is in Gaza, in the tunnels. They think about the hostages. You have a huge campaign going on today with hostages, families standing in location where the hostages were supposed to vote, you know, giving out T-shirts saying, choosing the hostages with, you know, they imply for the fact that they think that, you know, somebody may not putting them as a first choice for the country. Okay, but we also have, obviously, the rallies that take place every Saturday night as people are calling for national elections. And while these are very obviously local elections, how do we think what plays out today will play out in people's minds and hearts and emotions as we look toward the national leadership? Uh, This is a very important note, Jessica, because... You know, conducting election under fire, it's a big, big hurdle. And, you know, the military has proved in the last week how they can, you know, deploy the ballots inside war zone, inside Khan Yunus and inside all over Gaza. They allow for the soldiers and officers to vote. And, um, you know, saying that, you know, Minister of, uh, of Interior, uh, Moshe Abel, was on Army Radio today and being asked, can we conduct election under fire, under war, you know, conditions? And he said, we are proving today that this is possible. And he did not say it out front, but, the, the, you know, the innuendo was that we can go on and conduct general election, even at the time of a war. Obviously, this is something that his own coalition doesn't want to conduct because Netanyahu want to remain in power. But actually, the Minister of Interior implied that this is possible. He didn't say it's going to happen, but he said, you know, it's not off the table. Mm-hmm. Bira, yeah. I think, though, it's worth asking ourselves if, if it's possible to hold general elections during wartime, not from a technical point of view. It's not a question of whether the army can deploy uh, ballots uh, in war zones or not. It's a question of what goes through the minds of the voters and how open they are to considering the the factors and as as Tala mentioned you know the the the, the local the municipal elections today are going to pretty much show that people um, it's pretty safe to bet that there's going to be a very low uh turnout of voters in in ma- the majority of the secular or uh mixed cities and i think as, as she mentioned, people will just go for more of the same, just because, not because necessarily that's what they want, but because in their mind, this is not the time to, to, to weigh in on the hard issues and, and figure out what it is that they want, what are the candidates offering them, etc. So in that respect, today is going to be a colossal failure. It's not a good thing for a country that has municipal elections every five years 
to have an election that is just a throwaway, that is just a hard, you know, hard hash throwaway, because we're going to be stuck with that for another five years. So I think when we ask ourselves about general elections, the questions are quite different. Um, and they're not so much in, in respect of can we do this technically, but more to the point of what is it going to be about and what, what are we planning to achieve for it? I think the notion is that as far as the general elections go, should there be one in the near future, um, it is more in in the form of ratifying, if you will, or of bringing to the public the the idea of what do we want to do in this region and what do we want to do with Gaza on the day after, who, who should be responsible for um, for, for Israel's. Uh, rising up from from you know from the October 7th uh, disaster who's going to be responsible for choosing the next chief of staff the next head of Shin bet you know the head the next head of police who's going to be responsible for choosing the next Supreme Court judges etc so so I think more to more than anything this is a very principled and timely uh, election that we need to, we know that actually we need to have this conversation, if you will, with the voters. We need the voters to say who they want to lead. So I think it's a different, different situation, different, um, probably different, different outcome, and shouldn't really be measured by technicality. Okay. All right. We're going to move on from elections uh, to a very different topic that's very much on the table right now. We've got the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox draft issue. So there's Benny Gantz and Gadi Azenkot of the Security Cabinet presenting a plan to expand the draft to Haredim and Arabs because there is a great need for soldiers. Uh, and meanwhile, the High Court is ordering the government to explain why it is legal to refuse to draft the ultra-Orthodox. Bira, do you want to take a stab at uh, unfolding that one for us? Yeah, I mean, we could go into the technicalities of it and explain what happened at what date. Look, the bottom line is for a quarter of a century, the Supreme Court has faced petitions after petitions and has given decisions after decisions with regards to the issue of drafting ultra-Orthodox or Haredi um, yeshiva students to the army, just like any other 18-year-old in Israel. And I think this is no longer a principled question because everybody knows that at some point or another, this will have to be resolved by compromise. It's, you know, it's 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 going to have to be resolved by law and by compromise. the The issue about the the court yesterday and the interim interim order that it issued that is unprecedented in this within this realm of the twenty of the twenty five years we're dealing with this and within you know what we're dealing with now is that the court for the first time tied the issue of payments to yeshivas. Uh, the government payments to the yeshivas with the issue of of their draft. So it actually the, the the government has made a decision back in July to postpone a new draft law of, of, or talking about a new draft law uh, until March this year. So you know that period of time, those nine months, are considered illegal in in the way that the government doesn't have. A law to stand on to decide not to uh, draft the yeshiva students. If you accept that, that they did something out of order, 
then you also accept that the fact that they continued giving money to those yeshivas to support their to support their students is also illegal. And for the first time, the court decided to put those two things together and pretty much uh, hinted in, in yesterday's discussion uh, that they are willing to accept that, that, that those two months, those nine months period, you know, up until March, were conducted illegally and therefore everything that happened within this realm was illegal. And that might actually be, if they make this decision that the money should not have been transferred and it sh and shouldn't be transferred until there is a, a legal basis for it, I think that's going to be a big push, especially for the Haredim, to get this sorted once and for all. And I think within the atmosphere in Israel today, because of the war, that's actually going to perhaps provide an opportunity once and for all within compromise to find a solution for it that will be acceptable to both sides because I don't think there's any, the walls are closing in on them. Right. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Even the religious Zionists, you know, are saying you got to serve. You know, it's it, there's no way that we are going undergoing this war and are asking people to serve more and you're not serving. You got to serve. So I think with the money and with this pressure, all things combined, I'm I'm optimistic that there will be a, a way forward to, to find a, a compromise. Let's take a quick break. When we're back, we will uh, close up with the revelations about Hamas operatives in the hours before the October 7th attacks. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so this was another uh, piece of news that was revealed yesterday. Hamas operatives activated their Israeli SIM cards in their phones hours before the October 7th onslaught. It's being touted as revelations. It seems clear that this was something that different government officials and army officials knew about in the middle of the night. I guess my question for both of you, I don't know who wants to take it first, is on one hand, we know that Israeli SIM cards in the hands of Hamas operatives is not a new thing. What are we seeing from this that really sheds light in a different way, that shows us something that was different? The point was they, they made a change in the phones, pulling out a SIM card, entering a new one, which brought an alert to intelligence officers in the IDF. But the alert did not go 
higher up enough in order to motivate an action. That's the biggest problem. And, you know, at first, you know, the first um, um, revelation said that there were, there was a thousand of SIM cards replaced, but then military and Shabak issued a statement saying it was not a thousand, it was dozens, tens of SIM cards. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I mean, we all, you know, we are we all researching and trying to figure out what happened that night between the 6th and the 7th. I mean, to us Israelis, alerts and preparation should have been conducted much earlier than the 6th. It was not enough to be alerted on the 6th at night because, because we know that, um, you know, officers and even the chief IDF, Halevi, went to the to the parliament uh, in July and I think even as early as April and warned against the the enemy being preparing something. So there was alerts, but it was not conducted in a way that, you know, they did not put the finger on a specific date. And unfortunately, at that night, you know, all of the signs did not brought them to change the the troops of the area. And within Hebrew, there is a term, konanutim uh, shachar, which means you have to be prepared at dawn, early dawn, between 5 and 6 a.m. You have to be prepared. This is like a military concept. It's both uh, a coined term, but also factual something that you have to be prepared because those are the, those are the sensitive hours. And they were not. They were not prepared for this kind of uh, intrusion with 3,000 terrorists entering the country, breaching the fence in like 30 locations. So, I mean, I think in the coming years, we will reveal more and more about what took place in the 48 hours before the massacre. But we also have to look at what took place in the weeks and months before the massacre. It's, it's you know, it's all, you know, a big puzzle that we still need to figure out. Why do you think the revelations came out now? In other words, why were they willing to have them revealed? Why were they able to be revealed? So actually it was heavily censored up until Sunday night, I think. And it was leaked in Channel 14, a uh, big supporter of the of the uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. It was leaked there by someone who is not a regular member of the panel, just, you know, um, a visiting contributor. She revealed it sort of half-end, and then it it gave the way to the channel to sort of clear the way to announce this. Uh, and then the censorship had no choice but, you know, realizing it's all out there. And I think that the reason for that was... It still is, you know, Channel 14, who, as I said, it's like a political protector of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu. They want to prove that all the blames relies on the military, on the IDF, for not um, waking up the prime minister in the middle of the night. I mean, in this specific case, even the chief IDF was not, uh, he was not given the details on that SIM card replacements in the middle of the night. So they're trying to prove that the alerts and the intelligence did not go all the way up to the prime minister in order to get their point, which is Netanyahu is not to be blamed for anything that took place on October 7th. That's, that's the, you know, that's the scheme. That's the, you know, the attitude. But on when, while they're doing it, you know, Channel 14, they actually, you know, breached a heavily censored item that was, I think, known to at least military correspondents. Mm-hmm. Bira, you want to add anything? 
I just want to continue on the point of uh, Netanyahu. I don't think I don't think it was a coincidence. I don't think some guest commentator blurted it out. I think it's no coincidence that it happened on Channel 14. I think it's no coincidence that it happened with a, uh, a, a an avid supporter of him saying this. They also super exaggerated. She you know she was super dramatic about it and said. The, the the chief of staff he knew about a thousand uh sim cards being israeli sim cards being turned on at the same second and you know she she was really giving it this whole story and he did nothing and nobody um you know the, the prime minister didn't know about it etc and the this wasn't really accurate and the funny thing was that the immediate reaction from the prime minister was to feign amazement at the story and say that he, he's only just heard about it. And then the day after, we discovered that he actually knew about it on October 7th already. So and it, it, it didn't happen at the same second. It wasn't a thousand SIM cards, it was a few dozens. And Netanyahu knew about it. So, you know, um, so it, it feels like it's an orchestrated campaign that was meant, as Tal said, to um, to impeach the the army and 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 just play to the narrative that Netanyahu knew nothing and he he was a victim if anything of the army's failings. Okay, so orchestrated moments playing out on TV. Yeah. Okay. I think we're going to close out this daily briefing uh after hearing about these different topics. Thank you Bira and Tal for being with me today. It's been good to see you. Thank you Jessica. Thank you Jessica. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Times Visual's daily briefing. We'll be back again tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have comments about this episode or any others, always feel free to drop us a line. Podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, take care. And if you're voting, make sure to get out to the polls. Thank you.